Welcome back to Rising Giants, hosted by Max Thornton and Dominic Kalusik, speaking with the leading entrepreneurs, investors, and creatives in Cambodia's vibrant startup scene to learn what it takes to be a rising giant. On this week's episode, we are thrilled to share some exciting news with you. In case you missed the first annual and massively successful Startup and Innovation Festival in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, don't worry, we've got you covered. We will be releasing all five panel discussions on our podcast channel, starting with today's debate, the key issues impacting venture capital in Southeast Asia. In this episode, you will be hearing from leading Cambodian investors, including Bora Kem from Mekong Strategic Capital, Frederick Pru from Haystack Fund, Teen Lee from Siva Capital. Chor Sopanak from IG International Group, as well as special guests Jeremy Au from Monk Hill Ventures and Brave Podcast, and Ollie Forsyth from Antler. During the discussion, the panel covered a range of important topics, including the current state of early-stage investing in Southeast Asia, the investment climate in the region, and the challenges facing Cambodian startup growth and scalability. The panel also discussed the Cambodian startup scene and potential for growth in the future. By listening to the episode, we hope that you will gain valuable insights into the world of venture capital in Southeast Asia and learn about the key issues impacting the region's startup ecosystem. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the debate. So, you know, just to keep in mind, we'll start the conversation by asking a few questions, but the floor is going to be dominated by you guys. So think of a question and within 10 minutes, we'll open up the floor, which is kind of a, a different format than how these things are typically done. Hopefully you guys have a lot of questions to participate. Great opportunity to ask, you know, these accomplished folks. So I'll, I'll just start by setting up maybe a bit of the context for what's happening in venture capital on a macro level across the world, and then we'll kind of get your takes. You know, I noticed that we are called a debate, so hopefully we'll have a bit of a debate today. But basically, uh, venture has gone through a very interesting time, to say the least, within the last three years. 2017-18 was the hype where everybody could raise a billion-dollar valuation, at least in the developed world. And it's the same here for Cambodia as well. We see the majority of, you know, a lot of you guys in the room are part of that first cycle of entrepreneurs coming into tech in Cambodia. 2020, of course, we have COVID, but then you still see a lot of capital being raised. You still see a lot of deals being done in those years. 2022 came along and then, you know, adding on top of big macro trends like inflation, issues with certain startups having fraud, you know, Toronto's to name a few, WeWork. And then you also have, you know, the venture capital industry being criticized for not having enough work doing due diligence on some of those deals. Adding on top of that, you have Russia. So many things happening that should at least change the way that venture is being done all over the world. And so I guess my first question to you is, is VC dead? Or if it's evolving, what kind of, what will it evolve into, right? So maybe I'll pass the question to Jeremy to start, given your kind of broader view of the world, and then maybe I'll pass it over to our local funds to see how we're affected by that, right? So is venture capital dead? Venture capital dead, just to be dramatic, but... Well, you know, venture capital is not dead. It's very much alive. I think the world is divided into two parts, right? There are people who want change to happen, and there are people who want things to stay the same, right? And I think it's easy to say that, right? But things stay the same. What is it? We want the businesses to be doing well. We want the current way of life, the current culture, the current technologies, the current organizations, the current leadership to continue. That is the world that we live in every day. 
right? And there is the world of the future, the people who want to bring that future, who see that future, who see a prosperous Southeast Asia, an educated Cambodia, a place full of entrepreneurship and energy, and there's a deep love for the future, right? And it's tough to be a dreamer in Southeast Asia. It's very tough because everybody's against you. Right? Like, nobody wants that future to happen. I mean, yeah, we want you to be educated, but are we going to invest a million dollars in that? A hundred million dollars? A billion dollars? Nah, let's keep it in our pocket, right? We want you to build a business, but we're not going to support you because we've got too busy doing other things, right? And so I think venture capital is really about saying this, right? What is that alliance between the founders who see that future and the teams that want to build that future and the capital that is willing to be patient and to help co-own that future, to build it together. I think the future is inevitable. The science fiction that my grandparents read about every person would have a computer, crazy to them. But guess what? Founders, engineers, and venture capitalists work together to make that future. And we all live with, you know, iPhone has more processing power than the Apollo mission to go to the moon. Isn't that crazy? So I think the future is coming. But I think right now, I think the future is very unpopular, very unpopular because, you know, energy crisis, food crisis, inflation, all this stuff. So people are focused on the current, right? But, you know, I think venture capital, let's not kid ourselves. Being a founder is hard. Nobody likes you and nobody gives you time. And venture capital is not an easy job, right? I think a lot of people thought it was an easy job, but it's not. The future is hard. And so I think, I think we are returning to an age of sober, patient capital that is going to work in partnership with founders, with government, with education, with engineers, and we have to be patient. And one day, all the dreams we're going to hear today, every, you know, I'm seeing the dream, right? Coffee chains, paperless school administration. These are all dreams, crazy dreams. And I tell you, it's definitely going to happen. I don't know whether it's 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, it's definitely going to happen. And venture capital will play a small supporting role in that. Fred, looks like you are thinking really hard. <laughs> never, <laughs> happened, never happened before. It just for me, it's it's a lot of bullshit. Not what he said. <laughs> what I mean by that is, no, 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 no I, will, I, will not, I will not go there. It's very early still. Uh, this, it's a lack of practicality. Uh, as an entrepreneur myself, there's a lot of people who have dreams, but dream without objective, you know, stay dreams. Like it's not goals. Like it's achievable. What I like about Cambodia and Southeast Asia as a whole is uh, the resilience of that country amazes me all the time. And Canadians like me. We're so lucky to grow up in a country that never suffer anything, to be honest with you. My grandparents, maybe, my old grandparents, my grand-grandparents, the war and everything. But except that, you know, so a global crisis in Canada, the only thing they will check is if Costco or whatever, like Macro of Canada is closed or no, right? That's the only thing that can happen to them, right? That's why I'm so bullish about the sense of resilience of that country and my staff as well. I see every day that I'm always amazed about so I'm very confident about the VC kind of rebuff about, you know, they need to have practicality. So there's a lot of cheaters, a lot of people, you know, whoever, you know, make no revenue and worth a billion dollars doesn't make any sense anyway at the beginning. So if you print money, your money worth nothing at the end of the day. So it's kind of a basic principle. Cambodian understand that. Vietnamese also, like, you know, they understand the value. If you talk to your grandfather or grandmother, probably gold somewhere hiding in the couch or in the wall somewhere. So they understand value. What is asset? What is a real business? What is cash flow? Uh, so I believe that there's a lot of people, who, you know, should go to jail that will never go. That's, that's another problem. Uh, but in terms of practicality, I see a lot of great businesses and also the 
democratization of connectivity that you have in those countries allows to have great ideas. So if, if Cambodians welcome more sometimes humble opinion from foreigners or other people as well to just see how they can stepping stone and how they can, you know, build blocks, you have an amazing opportunity. There's no, I think, best place to be alive as a 25 years old than Southeast Asia for the next 40 years. So a lot of people dream to go to Canada tomorrow, maybe for school, but get back in as soon as you can. Because there's so much more demographic on your side and so much more youth. I'm 45 years old, so I'm kind of old. But but if you look at Canada, we'll be the youngest in the room in those kind of meetings. And here I'm the oldest, and that's what I like the most, I think, because it makes sense. But that's why I believe that the VC will change. But as you said before, our friend here, like, you know, the market doesn't give the bad word that you can imagine. So if, you're, if your business or startup is based on basic principle, basic needs, and it's understandable, I think you're okay. And you just need to bootstrap as much as you can. And VCs bootstrap is the word that they can have afraid of because you, bring, you build value while they're just waiting to get in. So bootstrap the most as you can and push us away the much as you can. Um, and when you feel ready to scale, that's okay, I, I believe. But I, I still think, and sorry, I think sometimes, but, you know, in Canada, if you want to start a business, you can put your own as a collateral. You will lose everything if you miss the objective. Cambodia, what is, I think is great is, is the risk of failure is a bit lower. And, and I still believe that build fast, fail fast is something that Cambodian can do a lot compared to a lot of Canadians, American or Westernized people. So you have an advantage, but... I think also here, the failure, it's a word that nobody want to talk about. It's kind of a face kind of thing. And you should embrace failure as soon as possible and, you know, correct. And, but for the VC perspective, when I see entrepreneurs that fail a bit, but they are very resilient, for me, I'm, I feel confident because they make some mistakes and how they can learn a bit. So, but Canada or whatever countries, people get, you know, one chance in 25 years to do one thing. The entrepreneurs that we support so far, they have about five, four, six different business and they start and they learn a lot. So that's why I'm, I'm confident in terms of the Southeast Asia market. What are you, what are you seeing, Ali? I mean, you, you've been, you know, all over the world. Antler is operating all over the world. Surely the way that certain VCs do it, you know, do their work. And to be frank, I think there's a lot of hubris in the sector and there's a bit of high mightiness, you know, in that upcycle. And now that we're kind of self-correcting, Surely not all VC could just say, oh, yeah, you know, we're just going to go on vacation and write you a check later. You know, all these memes about the venture is in a way well-deserved, right? So at, at the very least, even though VC may, may not be dead, maybe it's going to be a different form. There has to be a change of attitude. And I'm just curious how you guys approach it, how you, what you're seeing in the market. Yeah. Good question. So we invest in roughly, like I said, 400 companies a year. So we're investing in the very kind of earlier stages. For those of you who don't know, and there's an accelerator, so entrepreneurs come and build. Companies with us, they don't need to have an idea. They can just come in as a great person they are. We have roughly 20,000 applications a year, invest in 400 companies a year. And, you know, what we're seeing a couple of trends back to some of your questions. One, we're seeing a lot of operators, you know, being laid off. They want to go and start companies. Secondly, EC is not dead. I think it's just going for a a recycle in terms of, you know, reshaping how it's going to look in the future. So we're actually seeing a lot of these micro funds come up as well. So going very niche, you know, if you're a founder and you want a bit of capital, I personally think the best investor you can have is the best niche person in that category. So that's probably one side that's going. And further, you know, I've just been in Jakarta, Malaysia and Thailand in the last week, and there's so much opportunity. So many of these people want to go and start companies and 
we're very excited and we'd love to back anyone who has an idea. How about you? What do you guys think? I would say that the VC model is not the same in different parts of the world. And so as an investor, you can't apply the same principles you would as a VC in San Francisco or in the US as you would in Southeast Asia or as you would in Cambodia. And so and that's because the types of companies that you invest in will be different. The founders will be different. And so in in Southeast Asia, I think it's important that the investors are really hands-on and that they're flexible with the type of financial instruments that they're offering to the startups and so that you give capital that's responsible and that matches the use of how they're taking their money as well. <clears throat> but the technical assistance is quite important. So follow subsequent to making the investment, but giving the, the entrepreneurs technical assistance and helping to support and nurture their companies so that they can grow and give you a good return on your investment. Yeah. As, as a follow-up, you know, thank you for bringing in the points of technical assistance. So I see Haystack, I see IG, and I see your new fund as being very different from the typical VC model where you just make an investment, say goodbye, send me a report every year or every quarter. But you guys really get your hands on in terms of once you invest into a company, you guys get really active and, and really deeply entrenched into operating. So can you kind of expand a bit on IG's philosophy. I know that you guys do a lot of different deals, meet doctors, Jalat, you know. So how do you approach it? What's, what's behind that thesis or, or philosophy? I think the guy to the VC, like you have mentioned, and I appreciate him. He know very well in terms of the startup in Cambodia. The VC in Cambodia, the VC, if they want to invest into South Asia, I think some of the country may suitable for their existing process. But in terms of, I can say, Mekong region, there Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, and Thailand, probably they need to a bit change, get into the, the, the VC process. And how you mentioned, what they have done in the Shuven VC, the way startup in Cambodia, they still lack a lot of knowledge, human capital, and expansion. Because why they require VC? They require VC because they want to have expansion. They want to move into the next level of their business. So VC not just put in the money and waiting for the return. Startup in Cambodia, they need the help from the VC. Is One is financial, for sure, funding. Second is mentoring. You need to mentoring how to look into detail their existing endpoint and what is their potential and debate with them because they are very new in terms of scaling their business. So those are the, the skills that require for the startup in Cambodia. That is what we are done. And we, we always have hands-on with them, debate. <laughs> we are play as a VC, but we debate who going to be the best. What is the, the best version for them? That is a debate every month. So those, those are the hands-on process that we have done with a few startups here. Can I follow up? You know, is this approach largely because of early stage companies or is there something specific to this market why that format seems to be you know your your take both of your takes is it early stage or is it cambodia i think uh, early stage or if you look into the startup in cambodia um, most of the startup i think the founder or co-founder team probably below 40 so that quite a big number in terms of startup so they they still not ready for 
the next challenge, like example, COVID and also economic crisis. This, this is a real example. The startup can survive here. You can sit here, smell, and listen to the, the debate. You are very tough. You, you have passed by the tough challenge right now. Because compared to 2008, this one is double in terms of the impact. So I think you need to be proud of yourself, but there will be a big coming soon. So you need to be ready. I think okay. you can start. Time flies, huh? Time flies. Hello? Okay. For me, what he said, I think, is, is, is rightfully. We, we need to be there because we're going to save money by doing so. So for me, whatever the startup you invest, if you just give the money and the use of fund is not clear, you, you will have a lot of money to put back. And I think it's, you know, what amazed me also is, and it's kind of a, it's a critiques, but please bear with me two minutes, is a lot of Cambodian young, young, like below 30 years old, which is 60% of the population, whatever it is, they see the old generation making a lot of money. You see those cars in the streets and you see those families everywhere and those kind of things. And this kind of for them kind of landmark and they try to achieve that. And, and they don't realize that the, it's not the same era. It's not the same things. And you cannot you know, reproduce always this. What I believe sometimes is they put the goalpost a bit too far in their objective here in Cambodia and Vietnam is the same, but Cambodia particularly. And they should go back to practicality. And when I say that is you can learn a lot from the old lady from the market, the way she act, the way she sell coconuts. The she, there's a lot of practicality sense of business sense. And one of the best entrepreneurs I met are in the province. The way they act, the way they react, the way they cut costs, the way they protect their cash flow, the way they, they survive and they understand the dynamic of those revenue streams and everything. And it's, it's not rocket science. Uh, you can go to the biggest university. I presume all the guys do the big ones and whatever. But at the end of the day, you can just sit down in the market and see who's the best and why they're performing and why they're doing well. And you can transpose that to your business very easily. And that's what I like about this practicality sense that you have as, as Cambodia. But sometimes get forgotten. In turn, because now you feel that you have a computer, a nice office, a GIA tower, whatever the hell. But at the end is, is that feeling is, is, yeah, it's back to practicality. And this is, you have it in the blood. So I believe that's why it will be very successful here. Yeah. Isn't that your office? Yeah, it's my office. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so, Tian, I mean, I so I think we're talking, I mean, when we talk about venture, we almost synonymously, you know, talk about tech, right? And because tech has a certain way to scale because of software and the ability to go from zero to a thousand pretty quickly. But Tian, just to kind of follow up, your your fund, your new fund, ADB Frontier Fund, is not only just tech, but or maybe in other broad areas as well. Despite having a bit of the venture type of risk taking at the early stage of companies. So is the VC model applicable to other sectors like tourism or you know, what, what else can we re- reapply and reinterpret, right? Because that's what you were saying before is that, you know, this is a Cambodia fund, so you got to readapt it. So what's your take on that? Thanks, us. So the tech, the, the fund that we're building is small private equity. And, but just to some of the, the challenges that VCs, Injure in investing in companies. It doesn't. It's not so different from private equity companies who are investing in growth stage companies as well. What I find when I speak to founders is that when they are looking for capital, 
they're not looking for just money, but somebody to help them grow their business and having somebody to help guide them in that process. Because oftentimes when people get to a certain stage, they have a product and, and the founders have built a really good product, but they haven't built a company. And when you need to grow, you have to have a sound company with corporate governance, strong financials, so that other investors will come in and invest in the company as well. And so, so I think as an investor, it's important that not only do we help our investees find marketplaces for their businesses, but also to guide them in building very strong businesses and resilient businesses so that they can get follow-on investments. Thank you. You know, at MHV, we think about it in terms of atoms and bits. So atoms are things, right? Tables and so forth. And bits is, you know, computer, right? Digital. And so what we notice is that in atoms, it's as hard to scale, even with capital, to have that network effects, the synergies, the costs, economies, and so that's one side. And the bits, I think you really see the network effects, the virality and all of that. And so I think obviously software as a service is a very bit-like behavior, right? Because it's the most obvious to it. But the question then is, there's so many categories and verticals where they're atom-like, right? So we look at construction. Construction of the building itself, that's very atom. It's hard to digitize. But the land title, right? Who has the ownership? How do we transact? That's actually a bit, right? There's an informational component. And that's something you can play with as an entrepreneur. And so I think there's this interesting piece where there's pure bit plays, but there are atom plays that you're digitizing towards bits. And which parts can you extract value and generate value is the parts that are really, really interesting in Southeast Asia. And I think we see that, for example, e-fishery, for example, with fisheries. They're looking at the digital components of it. We're looking, for example, transportation. So I think there's lots of different ways we have to think about it, but I think that's how I normally advise founders to think about that opportunity and localizing that opportunity, especially for you know Cambodia, Vietnam, Indonesia. Okay, just to clarify, so if any of the folks here are not in tech, but they're entrepreneurs, should they be looking at invest investors, you know, like yourselves? Sounds like at least from what you're saying, Jeremy, is that you may think about how to scale differently as if it were a tech company, right? So just kind of just to clarify, you know, should they be looking at the likes of your fund if they're non-tech people? No, absolutely. And most of the investments we'll make <clears throat> will be in agri-processing and light manufacturing. But I I love data. And, you know, we would endeavor to digitize a lot of the agri-businesses and the manufacturing businesses that we invest in. And so might be calling you for insights too on how you're helping to digitize the companies that you invest in as well. But I think that's important for founders to evolve from from very manual work and and lots of paperwork to having all of their information in one place, setting up proper dashboards and setting proper KPIs. So they always have an understanding of how their companies are performing. So yeah, absolutely. All right. So yeah, one thing quickly, yeah. for me, you know, we invest a lot in agriculture as well in Canada. We're one of the biggest funds there to do that. It's you need to do. So you'll be surprised and amazed I heard that we just invested in a vanilla farm in Madukiri now, and what they do, it's amazing. There's kind of no tech yet, but the way they prototype, the way they advance, it's a lot of comparable. So there's no bad businesses when you find something, and I think that's what was great. So us, we're interested in those kind of things as well. Okay. So I promise the audience will be asking most of the questions. So raise your hand. You know, Come on. Somebody has to have questions here. Otherwise, I keep on going forever. Anybody has any questions? 
And remember, we highly emphasize asking a question because if you ask a question, you will be entered into a raffle to win a Nida Tribe Hotel, a Kumpi Mini Station, other really great prizes such as Three Corner Coffee. So we highly encourage it. And you have a high probability of winning if you ask a question. So we ask that you do. Can I ask a question? No, no. <laughs> We're going to ask the question. If you have other questions, raise your hand. We're going to ask it all. Yeah, we'll answer it at once. We'll ask at once, okay? Thank you. I promise I didn't raise my hand for the raffle ticket. What's your name, sir? Jason. Okay. Hi. Uh, thanks, everyone, for sharing a great insight. Um, so my question is, you invest in a lot of businesses, startup, and, of course, one of the key people you interact with is the startup founders. So my question to you, each one of you is... Uh, what are a few red flags, but also green flags from your experience of startup founders that it would be great to share with the rest of the audience here from your experience? Thank you. Okay. Next question. Um, I think you have a question, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I wanted to sort of like understand how corporates like IG Holdings thinks about investing in startups and, you know, is the end goal sort of like acquisition or do you want to spin them up, let them go public? So we're just trying to understand how local corporates think about investing and supporting a startup throughout the entire journey. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you for sharing. Since we are on the topic on Southeast Asia uh, venture capital, I'd just like to pose a question that how do you operate in different markets whereby certain countries, they are not as transparent like the countries like Malaysia, Singapore, where financial data are very easily obtained to countries that slightly harder to be obtained, like countries like Laos, uh, the likes of other countries. And how do you operate in this kind of context? Perhaps you could share with us more on that. Thank you. Anyone else before we start answering? Or you can like get it. What are your favorite industries in Cambodia that you're that you're really keen on getting into? Is it agriculture or otherwise? Uh, sorry, could you repeat, please? What industries are you interested in investing in in Cambodia? Thank you. All right. So first, uh, one more. Hi. Okay. Sorry, couldn't see you. Sorry, what's your name? Keisha. Okay. Hi. I might have missed it because I walked in a bit late, but I'm particularly interested in gender and how you consider that in your portfolios and any specific support that you offer to women founders. Thanks. All right. We have five questions. So the first one is red flag, green flag. Uh, if, if you could be, you know, single word. Craig. Red flags, one, you raise, one, actually, you don't listen. We meet a lot of founders and they think they know a little. And uh, let's not forget the VC ecosystem is very small. So if you're looking to raise from other funds, it's likely they're also sharing your pitch decks with us. And secondly, if you manage to raise a really good fund at a late stage investment and your tier one investors are not investing in your follow on rounds, that's a big red flag to us. For me, at early stages, humility and confidence. And the line is very thin between the both of them. So you can be a lot of confident in yourself or what you try to achieve, uh, but you need to have practicality and humility. That's something, if you don't have both or you have both green or red flag. Yeah, the reality is that out of 40 startups that get funded, only one is going to become a unicorn, right? So when you're working with an investor, you're going to be on a journey together. So actually, the entire pitching process is very much a team building exercise about building trust. You have to trust the, found, the VC and the VC has to trust you. 
So in one of our previous episodes on the Brave podcast at www.bravesea.com, hashtag plug, we talk about that, about how you can actually be very intentional about being transparent about the challenges, but also transparent about how you're going to approach them in a very structured and systematic way to actually achieve the outcomes. Because you want the VC to be like, I want to be your teammate for the next 10 years, right? And and you also want to you know, reference check the, the VC and make sure that they are also interested about your business, about your approach for the next 10 years. So my green flag is that I think Cambodian people is very hardworking and teamwork, I believe they, they done very well. Red flag is they need to understand their stage, the, the size of their startup. Because when you are in the startup, you need to know pre-seed, seed, city A, city B, city C, all those things. So you need to understand where, where are you at the, that level and what is the requirement of each stage that there is a red flag. Okay, so second question is from a local corporate side, IG, you know, how do you guys, why do you guys invest in startups and what's your end goal? I think pretty simple. We invest into the startup first. Cambodia startup is still very young in terms of the ecosystem. And our country infrastructure also is very challenging. So we invest startup to enable them into the digital world. I think what I have mentioned. Our startup most likely a lot of VC invest into a tech startup, but they forget about other industry that they require technology to enable them to make their process and also their value added into the market. So in terms of IG, we are come from a technology background. So I think that the only chance that we can help our startup ecosystem and the end goal will be help them to expand into the next level and either they go to IPO another VC, the bigger VC, that will be the discussion with the startup. I think the founder of startup will be have their plan. Third question is, how do you operate in an environment that is not fully transparent? I assume that the question comes from Singapore. <laughs> so, Fred, you want to do that one? or Transparency, maybe the, I'll point towards the local folks here. How do you deal with transparent, the lack of transparency in a place like this? What I understand from your questions, sir, if I'm not mistaken, is on a VC perspective, and um, us, we base our IP center in Singapore. So every single thing we own in terms of licensing, monetization, both from Canada to Europe, whatever, we now put it in Singapore for obvious reason. Um, our fund is, is, do it quickly, our fund is family office, so we don't take other funds, so it's our own. So... But we decide that when we time to partner, of course, it's difficult in the banking system. Now it's difficult. It's different because out of the gray list, those kind of things. But when we partner with bigger funds like those guys, uh, we need to have a central. So Singapore can play a real role for Cambodia. It's well-established. For the banking system here, it's well-established as well with Singapore, Korea, or Japan. So those three countries can help you a lot to scale as a VC. Um, also, for me... Uh, it's kind of a misconception that believing that all countries are very open and everything like Canada is not really better to you if you ask me. So it's all dependent where kind of industry you are and how sensitive you are. But for me, I think you're very lucky to be at one hour flight from or two hour flights from 4 billion people around. So you have big cities that you can work with. So Singapore, Thailand, you know, stock exchange of Thailand is one of the biggest. So there's a lot of things that you can do. So I will say that for a Cambodian entrepreneur, 
you know, the goal is maybe to be one day as high peak kind of level at Singapore base and operate in Cambodia. And after that, scale it to other countries around. But I will not recommend to start for Cambodia and try to scale out of Cambodia without having this component outside for many reasons, for IPOs, whatever you want to do after. And I also heard the question surrounding company, countries like Laos, where um, there's not a lot of data available. So I'm making two seed investments right now in Laos, and I don't live there, and we don't have a team there. But, you know, it's, it's a new country for me to work in. But having a good network in, in Laos, so as we were setting up the fund, I spent a lot of time traveling to Laos and building contacts with legal firms, with accounting firms, with other organizations that work on the ground. And so right now, as I'm going through due diligence with some of the companies there, I do cross-check cross -check the facts that I get from the founders when they answer certain questions with other people who are on the ground to work in the industry. And so there's not a lot of public information, but I think you can still find information if, as long as you put in the work in building the network of people to help you provide, to help provide information to you. Great. So fourth question is, which industry are you excited about? So maybe just kind of do three each, which, or which sector or industry are you interested in? While you have the mic. So I think probably because of the mandate of my fund, we're, we have investing on the gender and climate lens, but in companies that are doing agri-processing and light manufacturing. But that, those are the industries that are also really relevant to Cambodia and Laos, which is where we're making our initial investments. And so, yeah, those two industries. Very good. I know your question was about Cambodia, but maybe more generally in Southeast Asia. The crates economy, I think, is really exciting. I know we have a talk later on. We actually write an annual report on the state of the global crates economy landscape. We just published it two weeks ago, so you can check it out on our website. Plug. Second, actually, generative AI. We also wrote the first generative AI landscape, so you can check it out. That's on our website as well. Plug. And the third, um, I actually think e-commerce is going for a, a change. Um, so, you know, generative AI, discovery, and uh, checkout payments as well. So e-commerce third. You know, I think there are three big trends. The first is, you know, local team, global market. So... You know, anybody has the internet these days. So there's no reason why you can't build a global or regional or local software as a service, according to or whatever it is. So I think there's an opportunity for the right folks that are really thinking about it. Uh, the second, of course, is founders who are building for the local economy. So very deep. So it could be agriculture, it could be logistics, it could be education, but very thoughtful building and probably multiple blades of monetization. The third, of course, is more personal is I've always been a big fan of education. My last startup was an education tech company. So I think there's some serious difficulties in terms of the monetization ramp over time. But I think that's a passion theme that I'm always interested in because I don't see how we have a vibrant startup ecosystem in 20 years unless we educate consistently and invest more in education for the next 20 years. I think I agree with him going to the industry that first is education. Cambodian human resource scale compared to the neighbor country, we are still behind. So that will be the main factor that at the, at the foundation level that our human resource, they require a quick, big more upgrade in terms of skill set. That is the first industry. Second industry is infrastructure. I'm not talking about the physical infrastructure, but digital infrastructure. Currently, we have only one reliable is 4G or 5G telecom infrastructure. But 
you cannot scale from a technology point of view. You need another infrastructure for those physical, the IoT, Internet of Things, how they connect, how they talk with each other. Those the infrastructure they, they require, I think, but it requires only the big, like, big company. They will invest their kind of uh, big investment, but I do hope that there will be a second priority that I, I, I foresee. The third one is agriculture. We are, have a lot of agriculture. But our yield is very low compared to our neighbor country. So how you can improve in terms of technology, IoT, and also the, the knowledge, the skill trend, and also R&D, research and development in terms of helping agriculture infrastructure? Yes. For us, uh, the, there's a macro trend, I believe, in the next 5-10 years that it, is there food security, everything reliable, returns of food sustainability and everything. That's something we look at. That's what we do in Canada with winter farms and those kind of things where we're saving energy and try to scale, lower the cost of energy. That's the first thing. So everything regarding agriculture, food security, food sustainability. Second is, I think you talk about it, the infrastructure where you can simplify things or the convenient part of, of infrastructure. So the delivery part, but all the back end, how this thing connect together. My previous career was more in digital banking and all those facility payments and everything. So to connect those kind of things and make it make sense. So IoT, that's what we do right now. We have a lot of R&D and we have a room in ASTAC that we destroy stuff and we have fun with. So it's kind of funny. Third thing is, is community. For us, is there's a way of, of building data and monetize it. Cambodia is pretty much open in terms of QIC, know your customers and those kind of things. And there's a lot of possibilities that you can scale. So that's what we are specialized at. And, and we don't monetize it that yet, but what we acquire is amazing true kind of ventures that we built. So I will say everything regarding communities base, agriculture at full security, and, and also IoT, exactly this. And last but not least, the question on gender, what are you doing to support uh, women's businesses as part of your, your fund or your framework? So we've, we've backed nearly 400 female founders now across the globe. So the two things we do, in each location, in each sector we invest in, there are dedicated female founder groups to actually, you know, you, mar- you, you mentioned community being the, the biggest factor. That's very much the same for us. So for every sector and every uh, geography, a female founders built in, there are dedicated community groups uh, for them to help each other. And secondly, we also have a global operators network made up of 300 operators who come from the likes of Facebook, Google, and Snapchat. Half of those are female founders, and actually they love supporting female founders as well. So that's, that's our mandate for now. Yeah. At Monksville Ventures, it's quite simple. Half our company is female. Half our senior investment team is female. Half our overall investment team is female. And half of our portfolio company founders are female. Because last time I checked, you know, half of the world's population is female. Half of the Southeast Asia population is female. Half of the economy is female driven. So I don't think there's any requirement per se. I think what we do notice, of course, from working with so many founders, of course, is that there are differences in the verticals that founders may choose to pursue. And that's dependent, of course, on their background, their region that they're based from, and also their gender. And also, I think communication about how to communicate, how to pitch, and how to fundraise, we also find that tends to be coded for business, right? So again, on the podcast, we talked multiple times about female founders reflecting on what were the key things they had to change about their behavior to be able to access more capital, more resources, and more help from the ecosystem. It's, I, don't, I don't want to make any enemies, but for me, there's a truth there. 
believe there's a lot of women that are shy to ask and just go front. And, you know, my, my wife was, you know, she's the boss. <laughs> Make it simple. Uh, so Plopun Kumai, right? So you know exactly what I'm talking about. So the thing is, yeah, but I don't give half of my salary, okay? Is that okay? Don't do that. I know you do that, guys. I know. The thing is, is um, I think they're just shy, and, and, you know, guys, will, a lot of them will fake it until they do something. And they say, I, I will take the opportunity and I will do that. I will tell that I know and they don't know. <laughs> guys, right? Uh, but, but to be honest, I think it's just a lack of confidence a bit or something that maybe need to be reinforced. So please, women in the room, like, have the same chance. So exactly what he said. I don't believe in quota on my side. Like, we don't have this. Uh, and I believe that in major parties, you know, women are better than guys to understand practicality and connecting those dots in their brain, having 600 things to think in the same time. We're not wired the same way. It does, I believe it makes a lot of sense to bring, if you look at my office, I don't know if there's, my staff is not there, but like 80% of, of women in you know, management and, and also leading the way of understanding and having kind of a sense of calling bullshit on some stuff. And, and I believe that women are better than that than guys. And, and that's it. So I think we need a mix of it. But I think it's, it's your fault. At some point, you need to take on your shoulder to say, you know what? I should ask. I should try. And don't be ashamed or afraid of trying. And I think guys try a little bit more. And that's why we have more guys coming to us. So for 10 pitch, we have nine guys and a girl shy in the back. But sometimes she's the brain of it. But she don't, you know, I don't know. So it's maybe half two girls. So I know. And I try to pitch them every day that they're good. They're brave. They're great and everything. And I think it's still a work in progress. So I cannot talk for Cambodian, but I think it's it's exactly you don't girls just go and just try. That's it. Thanks. I wanted to hear what the guys would would say about the topic, but I think I'm a female fund manager, and and I realized that some of my initial invest, investments are not by female founders, but I think that the way we support support like gender lens doesn't necessarily mean that we support female founders because it's such a wide spectrum of different things that we can do. It could be the founding level, the management level, the board level, but even the supply chain level. Are are we sourcing, are, is this company sourcing products from com- female-run companies or is it building products that improve the livelihoods of women and children? And so I think if we're intentional about how we look at the gender lens and not only at the ownership level, but also on the management level, the board level, supply chain level, and a product level, the data that's gathered from it can really be used to help support support female equality in, in the industry. As a moderator, I'm not supposed to give answers, but I'm tempted just based off of Fred's response. But basically, this is 2023. So if you are in our seats trying to raise capital, you cannot raise any capital from institutions without putting together in practice inclusion framework. And there's so many different frameworks that are out there done by various sorts of organization, PwC, there, blah, 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 blah. And most of them have a variations of 50% of your managers are, your team are women, 50% of your port- portfolio companies are women, blah, blah, blah. And so you, in, in this day and age, you really need to have at least a concerted effort to be inclusive. I guess that's number one. I guess number two is going to like the idea of like what happens once you raise the capital. 
you know, how do you run your companies? How do you run your investment process? How do you um, look at pipelines? And so, of course, you know, a bunch of guys could just say, we, we look at 50% and then at the end of the day, here's how many investments we make. But I think the easiest way to do that is just to include as many uh, women in our team as much as possible so that, um, you know, there, there is a less bit less of inherent bias. You know, a lot of these investment decisions are not, oh, I like this team because they're mostly men. It's not a conscious choice, but I think it's just finding ways to make companies comfortable or women founders comfortable. I think that's partially responsibility of fund managers as well.